Welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. This is Ramita Ayer, research analyst at the institute. In this final edition of the South Asia Outlook 2023 series, which looks at the prospects and challenges for the region this year, we will be examining the geopolitical outlook for South Asia. If you missed listening to the other episodes in the series, check out episodes 176 and 177, which cover the economic outlook as well as give a broader analysis of what's in store for the subcontinent. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Professor C. Rajamohan, visiting research professor at ISAS. Professor Mohan, welcome to South Asia Chat. Thank you, Ramita. Nice to be here again. One of the most significant highlights of the year 2022 was the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the worldwide impacts that it has had on economies and foreign relations. The subcontinent too, much like most of the world, has been impacted by the ongoing conflict. Almost a year since the invasion, what is your assessment of how the region is coping from a geopolitical and diplomatic perspective? Yeah, I think uh, given uh, the scale and the intensity and the surprise of this conflict in 2022 uh, i think the region has struggled to adapt to it we saw india uh, you know which has become closer to the united states and the west in recent decades but still has a strong relationship with with russia uh, was trying to do a fine balancing act uh, without actually supporting russia but not criticizing russia either uh, and uh, trying to focus on uh, managing its economic problems that have arisen out of the out of the war like uh, availability of oil uh, and fertilizers and those kind of things so this india's approach this balancing did get some criticism from the west uh, and i think the government in delhi is trying to manage that uh, in pakistan uh, we saw uh, former prime minister imran khan actually show up in moscow uh, just uh, the day before the invasion was ordered and he was sitting with putin when the invasion began so i i suspect the the pakistanis were played by the russians uh, and they didn't realize uh, what they thought was really they were reaching out to russia for the first time and it was a great opportunity but it looks like the russians actually got the better of them uh, but now the uh, after imran has been ousted from power the army is now trying to recalibrate uh, the relationship uh, while they continue to engage russia Uh, they began supplying arms to ukraine uh, and uh, the military leadership is trying to uh, reengage the united states because i think there is a recognition that uh, the relationship with the us has gone down uh, and that they need to build up for most of the other countries in the region it's really the economic consequences that uh, uh, given the uh, the dependence on imported energy across the region uh, so for all of them it's it couldn't have come at a worse time for sri lanka uh, it couldn't have come at a you know worse time for bangladesh which is generally doing well but i think uh, the covid plus uh, the the oil crisis uh, generated by this war have all created complications so i think uh, for the rest of the region is largely been economic management while for india and pakistan uh, there was a geopolitical fallout as well So you mentioned the change in administration in Pakistan uh, with the ouster of Imran Khan and the swearing in of Shehbaz Sharif as prime minister. Do you observe any implications of the change in political command on uh, India-Pakistan relations? My sense is, you know, the civilian leaders do not have too much impact 
or influence on the relationship with India. Uh, my sense is it is the army that will continue to dictate the the direction, pace, and the uh, nature of the engagement with India. So I, I wouldn't think that, that uh, having uh, the PMLN government uh, would make much difference. Second, I think part of the problem is also uh, that while most of the civilians who are part of this government, both uh, Zardari, Nawaz Sharif, they've all been positive towards India in the past, but today I think they face the potential threat from Imran Khan on the streets. So they're not willing to make any, take any risks in engaging India, even if they wanted to. So, so my sense is, I think it's also that uh, the electoral cycle, Pakistan will need to have an election sometime soon. Uh, India is getting into an election mode. I think it'll be quite hard uh, for the two sides to be able to do uh, something imaginative and creative uh, at this point of time. Moving from Indo-Pak relations to India-China relations, uh, which continue to be an important defining factor in the region. Just in December of 2022, armed forces from India and China clashed near Tawang in the eastern sector of the Line of Actual Control, or the LAC, which resulted in injuries on both sides. While the official statement released by Beijing a few days after the incident noted that the border situation is generally stable, the broad understanding is that tensions continue to persist. In the coming year, how do you see the bilateral relations unfolding and what are the likely impacts on the region as a whole? Look, I think China is the most important external actor today in the subcontinent. And uh, ever since uh, the, the crisis uh, of 2017 in Doklam Plateau involving Bhutan and the 2020 crisis in, uh, in Ladakh, uh, have uh, put India-China relationship uh, in a deep chill. And uh, 2022, we did not see any major signs of it changing. Uh, now, in the new year, uh, now uh, as Xi Jinping has begun a third term, uh, but so far, uh, we've not seen any significant change in the Chinese approach to India. Uh, but I think there will be opportunities for uh, the Indian and the Chinese leaders to meet in the coming uh, days and weeks uh, at the SCO, Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization Summit that India is hosting, uh, the, uh, the uh, G20 Summit that India is hosting. So in all these, there will be an opportunity to engage. But given where China is, that the, we have not seen much flexibility where China has territorial disputes, whether it is Japan or India. But China is reaching out to, to Australia, to the United States, to Europe. Uh, so they're trying to see how they can uh, you know, redress some of the problems that have emerged in the relationship. Uh, but with India, uh, we have not seen any signs yet. But I think India said very clearly, uh, without a change in the border situation, uh, there would be no progress in the bilateral political relationship. Meanwhile, of course, uh, trade continues to grow. Uh, so that is a, that's a reality. The rest of the region, uh, we've seen uh, both Pakistan and China, which had so gone so deep into the Belt and Road uh, uh, you know, investments, uh, they find themselves in a bit of a trouble. Uh, it's not, uh, and both of them have serious debt, debt challenges uh, which involving China. So I think some of the luster about the Belt and Road projects in, in the subcontinent, uh, that has kind of uh, been, that shine has dimmed. Uh, there is no doubt about it. That doesn't mean China will stop being a major economic actor. Uh, it remains the largest trading partner for most countries and for India too. 
so, so I think the economic weight of China, especially on the trade and other domains, will remain a powerful one. Uh, and uh, like the rest of the world, South Asia has, India certainly has to manage the contradiction between the political problems and the growing trade relationship. Uh, just a quick follow-up. Are you of the view that smaller countries in the region will be forced to pick sides and actually have to choose between India and China? Or in other words, how much agency do the small countries actually have? No, they don't have to choose. Actually, they have more agency. Because of the rivalry between India and China, their bargaining power grows with, with both of them. Uh, so they can exercise leverage uh, to seek benefits from both India and China. My sense is most countries will do it uh, unless there is an ideological government like the Maoists uh, in Nepal where they might say, look, for ideological reasons, they're going to draw closer to China. But even there, uh, there will be pressures to, uh, to, to take advantage of the China-India rivalry rather than having to choose sides. In late 2022, India assumed the presidency of the G20. We touched upon this issue um, in episode 163, which looked at India's strategic choices. But now that the G20 meetings have actually begun across various cities in India, could you share your impression on how Delhi intends to use the forum to address its uh, foreign policy and domestic concerns? Look, I think this is not a great time to be doing multilateralism. Uh, there is a lot of enthusiasm in India, uh, Prime Minister Modi, He's trying to connect foreign policy to the to the domestic politics. He's trying he's taking it to the masses in a way uh, that the G20 summit is a rare thing, uh, and uh, all the top 20 economies leaders are going to be here. So there is an effort to showcase this India's new position to the domestic politics uh, in the domestic politics. Uh, this I think is one interesting thing. The second is, but if you look at multilateralism objectively today. Uh, we have two basic problems. Uh, one, the major powers are locked in a conflict. Uh, Russia is locked in a conflict with the European countries and the United States. Uh, China's uh, tensions with Japan, India and the US have grown. Uh, so political level, uh, it is going to be very, very difficult to really achieve anything. You remember the Bali summit where Indonesia was the host in 2022. Uh, they could not get all the leaders into the room. I mean, President Putin did not come to Bali. So there'll be a lot of questions uh, whether President Putin will come to India uh, and if he comes, how do the other other leaders react to it? So I think uh, that whole set of issues uh, as the war, uh, you know, becomes more intense in this coming year, uh, as it looks like there is going to be more escalation. So I think getting them into one room and keeping them well behaved uh, is going to be a very, very big challenge for India. So, so I think on the political side, uh, there is a uh, there is a real problem on the commercial and the economic side the old globalization order is breaking down uh, there is no agreement between the world's leading economic powers and how to manage the global economic order therefore india's ability to make any big uh, transformative uh, advances uh, in the in the summit i think remain limited but third i think it is in the process areas where in india gets a chance Indian diplomacy chance uh, gets a chance to engage uh, so many countries uh, at such an intensive level that I think the very act of doing this uh, would give India a great experience uh, and also uh, hopefully more openings in dealing bilaterally with many of these countries. And in the process, if India can uh, generate some consensus on non-controversial issues, 
something on digital inclusion, uh, health security. Uh, if India can get one of those two things passed, which benefit India and the, and the developing world, uh, that'll be that'll be a big victory. So I think I would uh, temper expectations uh, that the gains, uh, if if there are any, will be modest, and the challenge will be to really manage this difficult moment in global multilaterals. Finally, uh, we've seen a growing interest in the Indo-Pacific region in the past few years, with several Western countries coming out with their own Indo-Pacific strategies. Where do countries in South Asia feature within this narrative and how can they leverage their position? In fact, uh, I think uh, the US is viewing South Asia through the Indo-Pacific prism. That's a big change for the last 40, 45 years. The main focus has been on Afghanistan on the terrorism, on the insurgency, uh, on uh, mobilizing a jihad against the Soviet occupation back in the 80s. So it was the Afghanistan was the fulcrum of much of the geopolitics of the subcontinent in the last 40 years. But now the focus is US has withdrawn from Afghanistan and it is the Indo-Pacific prism that is defining the US engagement uh, with this region. Uh, for example, uh, once U.S. has withdrawn from Afghanistan, the value of Pakistan as a frontline state has significantly declined. Uh, and once the focus is on China and the Indo-Pacific, the value of India has dramatically gone up uh, for the United States. So the emphasis on Quad, on Indo-Pacific Indo security, clearly demonstrates uh, the new interest in India uh, in the United States. And there is a bipartisan consensus on that. So we've seen the Biden administration elevate the court to the summit level. Uh, we've seen a series of high-level uh, engagements uh, at the summit level on a range of issues. So the court uh, is a consequence of the, of the Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, it's not just India. I mean, uh, in the Himalayas, for example, uh, if the given the focus on China, the U.S. interest in the Himalayas will continue to grow uh, because in the 50s and 60s, we might recall, Nepal was very important uh, in dealing with the question of the crisis in uh, in Tibet. Uh, to I think uh, the focus on uh, China uh, will give uh, bring more attention to Nepal and Bhutan and the dynamic in the in the Himalayas. Uh, and given the importance of the maritime side, uh, we've seen uh, the the U.S. taking more interest in Maldives in Sri Lanka. Uh, there is eagerness to step up security cooperation with Maldives. Uh, there is eagerness to engage Sri Lanka. So once you focus on the maritime, the small island states uh, become very crucial for the US strategy. And therefore, there is actually a, a lot more interest in the waters of the subcontinent and in the small island states uh, of our region. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Prof Mohan. You were listening to South Asia Chat. To learn more about our work, visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. You can also get updates on our work from social media. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram.